Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. It's nice to see the halos kind of coming down this row as the sun kind of shines on everybody. Also, a little bit earlier when the kids were being dismissed, I was wondering whether we were going to have a little bit of a my, oh, captain, my captain moment with some of those kids standing on chairs. I wouldn't put it past McTaggart to arrange something like that. I want to start this morning with a quote. Uh, Richard Clark asks this question, can joy and hope persist in the midst of massive cultural or personal pain? Well, let's hope so. I've been watching a lot of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood with my 20-month-old son Atticus lately. I've been floored by what seems like the most realistic approach to children's programming I've ever seen. Mr. Rogers acknowledges our fear of change, feelings of exclusion, and the insecurity that comes with feeling inadequate. He reminds me that not only are fear and alienation a pre-existing problem, they're part of the underlying hum of our lives. It's a lesson Atticus doesn't really need to learn. He already senses it. I'm just glad he's got Mr. Rogers in his life telling him he's not alone. Sir Richard Clark, the online managing editor of Christianity Today magazine, and I imagine that the percentage of people in the room who remember Mr. Rogers is relatively small, um, but, but whether you've watched him or heard of him or not, I'm sure most of us can relate to what Clark is saying about fear and alienation being part of this underlying hum of our lives, that this is a given, and, and not to mention the sobering reality that even young children can intuitively sense this. I don't know what your anxiety levels are like at the present moment. Uh, Mr. Rogers isn't on Netflix, but I'm told it's on Amazon Prime. So if anyone is really feeling like they need another dose of this, or a first dose, um, you can maybe check that out. But when that is your experience, regardless of how you're coming into the room today, who are the voices you listen to? Who tells you you're not alone? Who tells our children they're not alone? And can hope and joy persist? Questions like these are of the sort that we might imagine were hitting close to home for the earliest followers of Jesus as he neared the end of his ministry on earth. When Jesus started saying things like, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know the place where I'm going. If you really know me, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. The Father is going to send you the Holy Spirit. It's better for you that I go away. These words didn't always ease the disciples' anxiety. More often than not, they created more confusion and inner chaos. Peter was like, why can't I follow you now? Thomas was like, we don't actually know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Philip was saying, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for you. And Jesus, how long will I put up with you? This is not a picture of children being comforted in a Mr. Rogers-like way, not initially anyway, but Jesus persisted, and they kept listening despite not getting the full picture. One thing Jesus said just before they shared their last meal together was this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I give to you not as the world gives. Don't be troubled or afraid. We're in week two of a three-week series on peace, and if you missed Lance's sermon last week, I highly encourage you to listen to it. And today my hope is to continue to the conversation first with an echo that when it comes to learning what it means to be people of peace, people who make peace, we take our lead from Jesus. He is the one who not only tells us we're not alone, but who showed us how to extend that reconciling posture to others as well. Neighbors, yes, but also enemies. We're going to spend our time with this single verse together 
this morning, asking a number of questions of it. So my desire is to gain a fresh hearing for Jesus, to humbly sit at his feet in order to glean his wisdom and to see what difference it might make to receive the peace of Christ and to live in such a way that we might offer it to others. So we started this practice uh, last week of just having, observing a discipline of silence as we prepare to continue. And so I'm going to invite us to that as well. And be, to be clear in saying that we practice silence not at the expense of our speaking or at the expense of our acting out, but as a way of grounding it, as a way of ordering any speaking or acting that we may take on. This is a season where I feel we need to be still and know that we are not God that God is God, and uh, to just have a momentary pause to the barrage of words that can so often be violent in themselves. So let's be still just for a few moments together, and then I will break the silence with a prayer. So invite us, let's be still and receive from the Spirit. Blessed Trinity, as we sit and... Uh, still ourselves and we hear the sounds of babies crying we're reminded that not all is right with the world we're reminded of your words that you spoke as well saying in this world you will have trouble but take heart I have overcome the world so we're grateful this in this moment for your presence with us we ask for eyes to see for ears to hear what it is you want us to receive this morning we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So our verse again, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I give to you not as the world gives. Do not be troubled or afraid. I invite you to respond uh, to this question. What words or images come to mind when you think about peace or when you hear the word peace? Just what free association? Anyone just call it out when you hear that? Struggle. Thanks, Jeremy. Hippies. Hippies. The sign. Nature. Poppies and, and doves. My first attempt at hearing floppies, and I was like, oh, it's a different computer era. And I was like, no, that can't be what she means. Poppies and doves. What else? What comes to mind when you think of peace? Swimming. Yeah. Music. Conflict. Stillness. Say it one more time. Forgiveness. Thank you. Forgiveness. Communication. Uh, bedtime <laughs> and scene. Uh, that's, that's a good one. That's a good note to end on. Um, yeah, a lot of great words there. We could have some, some wonderful reflection even just to share. What does that mean? What is, what's behind that for, for each of us who are mentioning these words? Let's ask also the question, what does Jesus mean by peace? What is peace biblically speaking? We often think of peace as something, either a feeling of inner calm or tranquility, uh, when we're trying to make a really important decision about vocational direction, say, or, if, uh, or where to live, or if you're on the ferry, whether to have a bacon cheddar burger or just to stick with the legendary. 
And then there's this, this tension that you uh, just don't have peace about this. And usually when we're talking about peace in that regard, we're thinking more about peace of mind or peace of heart. On the other hand, we, we often think of peace as the absence of war or physical violence. Peace marches, for example, are usually a form of nonviolent protest against war or conflict of some kind, where you see signs like these. Peace, not war. Think outside the bomb. End violence against women. And when the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. Hashtag Jimi Hendrix. It's very small on the bottom of that. There are also, of course, some marches where, that, that address concerns broader than that, places where you might see signs that are more like this. Without Hermione, Harry would have died in book one. I kind of feel like that last one would, would have been a J.K. Rowling-approved sign, because I think she, she was aware of that too. And this one's so bad, even introverts are here. That resonated with me also. These are, of course, what the word means in English, inner tranquility, absence of war. But the Hebrew concept of shalom, as most of us will know, conveys the picture of a circle. Lance looked at this theme last week. Listen to these words from Dale Bruner. Peace or shalom means communal well-being in every direction and in every relation. The person in the center of the circle is related justly to every point on the circumference of the circle. So if we could translate, blessed are the circle makers and make sense, we would. To bring peace in scripture is to bring community. Peacemakers are reconcilers. I love the word conversation when we were talking about peace or communication. So when Jesus, who is about to complete the work he came to do and exit the company of his closest circle of friends, says, peace I leave with you, what he's saying is I'm not leaving you empty-handed. What I'm giving you is a vision for universal restoration. Here's what it looks like. Peace between God and humanity. Enemies reconciled. Disintegrated personalities healed. Weapons of war decommissioned and transformed into agricultural implements. Injustice and oppression removed. Communities flourishing. Creation liberated from bondage. The abolition of sickness and death. Now let's not move on too quickly from this. That is the trajectory says scripture that the triune God has in mind for our planet. Imagine. Now, some of us might be thinking, are you kidding me? This is never going to happen. Our world looks nothing like this. Shalom is a great concept, sounds fantastic, but it's nothing more than wishful thinking. You're kind of right. <laughs> in many places and times, there has been a massive gap between this vision and our lived reality, but Jesus continues to offer peace, and every once in a while we see glimpses of it. And despite all evidence to the contrary, Jesus is still committed to this vision of a peaceful kingdom. It's the main thing Christ was on about. As one writer put it, peace is at the heart of the gospel because the mission of God is to bring peace to the whole of creation. And here's an even more radical statement. Without Jesus, this vision of peace would be impossible. It couldn't happen. That's why I feel bold to say not only peace in general I leave with you, but my peace I give to you. Some of you have probably seen this image before on a t-shirt or maybe a bumper sticker. Do you remember bumper stickers? So you know how to read this, right? No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. As cheesy as it is, it's kind of true. 
Here's what I mean by this. There are, of course, a million reasons why peace, as Scripture defines it and as Jesus embodies it, eludes us. But I think a main one, however, is that we have confused peace with other things. We sometimes mistake peace for unconsciousness. It might be true that we can achieve a feeling of peacefulness when we're tired or when we've had a few drinks, but peace, as Jesus defines it, is not desensitization or numbness. It's actually being more awake and alive, not less. We sometimes mistake peace for happiness, the happiness that's more of a temporary high, like when you find a $20 bill in a pair of jeans that you just washed, or when you're leaving on vacation, or when Katy Perry drops a new single. I don't know, choose your flavor. But as peace as Jesus defines it runs much deeper. It's an inner assurance, a deep trust in God's sovereign control amid all of life's polarities. And please please let us not forget that peace as Jesus defines it is much more societal. It isn't just about my well-being. It's a vision for universal restoration. So the kind of peace Jesus is talking about, true peace, comes through a person. Let's explore this a bit further. What does Jesus mean when he says, my peace? We can start toward an answer to this question by remembering who it is that's saying these words. The one the prophets called the Prince of Peace. The the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who came announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. The one who came to usher in an alternative arrangement that could best be described as peace. And let's be clear about another thing. When scripture speaks of a vision for reconciliation in this vast, broad, all-inclusive sense, the circle of shalom, it's not just talking about Christians going to heaven at a point sometime in the future to a place far away and probably up in the sky. The biblical writers are united in their concern for the renewal of this world here now. So when we say Jesus saves, what do we mean if not just Jesus makes sure we go to heaven? Brian Zond says Jesus is the savior of the world in a real, wonderful, and urgent way. The Prince of Peace who can lead humanity out of the madness of arranging our world around power and violence and war. And we see this when Christ's followers take him seriously enough to actually do what he said. A reminder he gave his disciples just a few verses prior to this one. John 14, verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And one of the most powerful of those teachings in bringing about the reality of shalom is what we heard in the lectionary text earlier, love your enemies. Now, this is something the early Anabaptists really tried to live out. Some of you maybe heard the name of Dirk Willems, you who have studied a bit of Anabaptist history. Dirk Willems is a bit of an icon in the Anabaptist tradition. He was part of an underground church in the Netherlands during the second half of the 16th century. So this is a time when persecution was rampant. Protestant Reformation was in full swing. And so Willems, for one reason or another, had been arrested and imprisoned. But one day he managed somehow to uh, escape. And as the story goes, he's fleeing across a frozen canal. And he heard the ice give way behind him. So he turned around only to see the bailiff who had been pursuing him falling through the ice. So what does Dirk Willems do? He ran back, and he rescues his pursuer. This image was from a a book known as The Martyr's Mirror, and there's many other stories like this. But it wasn't long, as the story continues, before Willems was re-arrested. And soon after that, he was burned at the stake. So this was an act of compassion that cost him his very life. 
Now, many within the Anabaptist tradition have reflected on this story. Why would Dirk Willems turn back? And the most common conclusion, that this was an instinctive response. That there wasn't time for careful analysis of pros and cons. This was the result of being shaped in a community where enemy loving was seen as normative for disciples of Jesus. That's what radical devotion to the teaching of Christ looks like. And that leads us to a somewhat paradoxical aspect of my peace. If it's true that peace according to scripture is about more than inward tranquility, if peace as defined by Jesus is more about shalom, this circle of right relations, then the pathway to peace will inevitably be marked by toil, by confrontation. The ministry Jesus brought was nothing less than a spiritual war with one's family, with the devout, and with the religious and political elite. So for the Christ follower, in other words, peace is defined by the life and death of Jesus. And the way Jesus does peace defines the way we do it. And the way is rough. Beekner said, on one occasion, Jesus said to the disciples, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have come to not come to bring peace, but a sword. And later on, the last time they ate together, he said to them, our text today, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. The contradiction is resolved when you realize that for Jesus, peace seems to have meant not the absence of struggle, but the presence of love. So the verse right before John 14, 27, let's remember, is the promise of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus says, the Father will send in my name. To put it another way, the very Spirit of Christ will be with us as we enter the fray of working for peace. So maybe that's why Jesus then says, don't be troubled or afraid. He knows very well what peace of this variety will cost but he's about to show us what it looks like through his own example, and he has offered his very self as empowering presence. So now someone again might say, well, that sounds great, and, I, but, and all, but why aren't we seeing this? It's this question of why there's this huge chasm between what Jesus offers, what, between what he teaches, and what our world looks like remains with us. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you, I give to you not as the world gives. So what I want to suggest in response to that question, why this gap between vision and reality is not rocket science, it's simply this, that instead of receiving Christ's gift of peace, the peace of Christ, seeking to pay it forward through our lives, we as the church more often than not have rather opted for what the world gives. Instead of taking Jesus' lead, ushering in a peaceable kingdom, we have chosen instead the way of power and of coercion and of inequality. So why did Jesus have to say this? I, I give to you not as the world gives. Because he knew full well that the world gives in compelling and attractive and seductive ways and because the peace Jesus came to give was so opposed to the default understanding of what that meant. So despite some initial confusion, the church actually did start off relatively well. And along the way, there have been both inspiring stories of uncompromising obedience, like Dirk Willems, as well as a lasting witness, often visible from the margins. But by and large, we have been taking the bait of self-serving power instead of self-giving love for nearly two millennia. So what we're seeing right now is the logical result of not taking Jesus seriously. Brian Zond again. 
He says, divorcing Jesus from his ideas, especially his political ideas, has been a scandal plaguing the church for 17 centuries. The problem is this. When we separate Jesus from his ideas for an alternative social structure, we inevitably succumb to the temptation to harness Jesus to our own ideas, thus conferring upon our power-based political constructs an assumed divine endorsement. Continuing, with little or no awareness of what we are doing, we find ourselves in collusion with the principalities and powers to keep the world in lockstep with the ancient choreography of violence, war, and death. We do this most unconsciously, but we do it. I've done it. And the result is that we reduce Jesus to being a savior who guarantees our reservation in heaven while using him to endorse our own ideas about how to run the world. It's pretty hard. Bruxy Cavey wrote that if the history of religion were turned into a series of displays in a wax museum, visitors might think they had entered a chamber of horrors. The centerpiece of the museum would be a body lurching towards you, seemingly animated, but without a head. And the destructive plaque would read the institutional church throughout much of its history. So the church that professes Christ as its leader, its head, seems to be severed from its head. The result, the story of one of the most violent religions in history. And this, of course, is one of the most common reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. It's a good one. And the argument goes like this. Jesus himself said, you shall know a tree by its fruit. So if that's the case, then isn't it obvious that the tree Jesus started, since it's bearing such horrible fruit, we should just toss the whole thing aside? Point well taken. But what if the church's history is not about Jesus' teaching bearing bad fruit, but of his teaching being completely ignored, downsized, or diminished? What if that is the true source of the bad fruit? Chesterton said, The way of Jesus has not been tried and found unfruitful. It has been found difficult and left untried. What if followers of Christ today would give themselves to the revolutionary experiment of actually living out the way of peace as Jesus revealed and taught. I want to take us on a short tour of the Chamber of Horrors. If you're okay with that. There are doors over there. I'm not going to block them. Why are we doing this? To better discern how they happened? A little bit. What their effect has been? and what we should do about it. Also, I feel like while many of us have at least a basic understanding of some of these parts of the church's history, we don't often look at them. We skip over the squeamish parts. We maybe make brief mention. Yeah, the church did some horrible stuff, but there's all this awesome stuff that we also did. So both true, but I think we skip over it too often. So I want to offer these vignettes in part to help us feel the impact of not following Christ. Because remember, we're talking about a faith that was apparently founded on one who was prophesied as the Prince of Peace, a man dedicated to radical nonviolence. And I want to give credit here to Bruxy Cavey's book, The End of Religion, as a helpful resource on this. So, first stop in the tour of the Chamber of Horrors, the Crusades. In 1095, Pope Urban called for the Knights of Europe to unite and march to Jerusalem to save the Holy Land from the rule of Islamic infidels. Just a few decades earlier, Pope Gregory VII had declared, cursed be the man who holds back his sword from shedding blood. Now, his wishes were now then coming into being. 
Raymond of Agiles accompanied the Crusaders as a representative of the church during the First Crusade. Here's how he described the taking of Jerusalem. And by the way, some might find it ironic that the most common interpretation of the name Jerusalem is City of Peace, Jeru Shalom. So here's Raymond of Agiles. He says, wonderful things were to be seen. Numbers of Saracens, Muslims, were beheaded. Others were shot with arrows or forced to jump from the towers. Others were tortured for several days, then burned with flames. Piles of heads, hands, and feet were to be seen in the streets of the city. It was necessary to pick one's way over the bodies of men and horses. But these were small matters compared to what happened at the Temple of Solomon. What happened there? If I tell the truth, it will exceed your powers of belief. So let it suffice to say this much at least, that in the temple and portico of Solomon, men rode in blood up to their knees and to the bridle reins. Indeed, it was a just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers when it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. Men, women, children, all slaughtered in the name of Jesus, Muslim and Jewish. The synagogue in which the city's Jews were sheltering was set to fire to burn them alive. And at the end of the day's brutality, the crusaders would gather together full of happiness, full of weeping for joy. Time of worship. If this were a screenplay, it might be a good time for a flashback to Jesus' words on enemy love and nonviolence. He said, this is what I say to all who will listen to me. Love your enemies and be good to everyone who hates you. Ask God to bless anyone who curses you and pray for anyone who is cruel to you. And church history reveals that Jesus' words were deeply needed but rarely heeded. There was much more, of course. Other crusades would be launched against Muslims, but many were specifically directed towards the Jews. They were the ones who had killed Jesus after all, weren't they? So they're thinking. Church leaders missed the point of the passion narratives, which are an indictment against the blind religious elite, not the Jewish people as a whole. And so besides killing people of other religions, the church also sponsored crusades against groups who claimed to be Christian but didn't conform to standard doctrine and practice, practice, groups like the Cathars. The Albigensians or the Cathars were a pacifist movement, unorthodox in some ways, but they were trying to live out many of Jesus' teachings. So in 1179, Pope Alexander III declared a crusade against them. Here's what he promised to all who would take up arms. Two years of indulgences, so freedom from punishments for sins, and eternal salvation if you were to die in battle. Well, this wasn't enough to get things rolling. Uh, it was a pretty popular group, and so they didn't amass enough numbers. So a little later, about 20-some, 27 years later, 1208, Pope Innocent upped the ante. So he offered the two years of indulgences, salvation if you die, plus the lands and the property of the heretics to all who would take up arms. So people like, ah, something we can sink our teeth into in the here and now. So this resulted in a 30-year crusade that swept through southern France. And anyone connected to this sect was rounded up and slaughtered. Men, women, children. By the time it was over, the Cathar Crusade killed an estimated one million people. Not only Cathars, but much of the population of southern France. According to the Catholic Church, its only motivation was religious purity. That's the Crusades. The Inquisition. This is another fun stop on the tour. 1231, Pope Gregory IX began the monastic inquisition. Priests from the Dominican order were set apart as a tribunal to root out heresy. 
Their accountability line? To the Pope himself, that's it. 20 years later, Pope Innocent IV sanctioned the use of torture in his pursuit of a confession from suspected heretics. The result was one of the most horrific realities imaginable, systematized torture in the name of Jesus. The Pope himself, the supposed representative of Christ on earth, gave the approval for inquisitors to explore the depths of terror and cruelty. So the, since the church believed that religious leaders should never spill blood, new methods were invented to aid the hypocrisy. The rack, the hoist, the thumbscrews, water torture were the most common. Christian leaders also came up with other inventive means of torture, such as slowly dislocating or dismembering the body. Pincers had to be white hot so that the heated metal would cauterize the wound as flesh was being torn open. And many of the torture devices used by the Inquisition were inscribed with the motto, glory be only to God. And this wasn't just a brief moment in time. The Inquisition lasted for centuries. Most of the damage was done during its earlier years, but for centuries, a few people every year were burned alive as an act of faith. The last known victim of the Inquisition was a school teacher charged with heresy. She was executed by strangulation in 1824. Now, we Protestants sometimes like to turn down our noses at the misdeeds of the Catholic Church, but when it came to killing heretics, even some respected reformers, such as John Calvin, approved of their deaths. Next stop, witch hunts. Both Catholics and Protestants sought the death of suspected witches. Anyone who seemed to draw power from nature through herbs or who healed in unconventional ways or just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time could be accused of being a witch. Taking the Old Testament law as their guide, Christians believed that death was the only option for anyone involved in sorcery. Men were sometimes charged, but women were the prime target. Suspects would be held accountable for virtually any problem. Personal misfortune, bad harvest, famine, plague. Eventually, identified witches who were almost always misidentified Christians became the new scapegoats, a role formerly held by the Jews. Now, historians differ widely in their estimation of the numbers, but most guesses are between 60,000 and 200,000. Last stop, infighting. The image I shared earlier about a decapitated body being an accurate picture of the church, well, what if we took that a step further? Bruxy wonders whether our waxwork should actually be a body fully dismembered and lying in pieces. For centuries, Christians have followed a pattern of debate, divide, and fight. Debate, divide, and fight. Debate, divide, and fight. Debate theology, separate those from those you can't convince, and then fight against everyone who disagrees with you. Using either words or swords, Catholic against Orthodox, Protestant against Catholic, and everyone against the Anabaptists. There are apparently about 3,000 different Christian denominations on the planet today. Most came about because of an inability to stay united in the face of differing opinions. And James Fowler has some choice words for the historical church for missing the mark on this. He said, Christianity is not essentially assent to or beliefs and tenets of truth, but rather receptivity to and participation in the activity of the being of the one who is truth. Jesus did not say, I came that you might have orthodox beliefs and defend them unapologetically. He said, I came that you might have life. 
the very being of God and have such more abundantly in the abundant expression of God's character in our behavior. I can't help but wonder what church history would look like if we who claim to follow Jesus actually tried to live out the character of Christ. We do indeed have a violent, a sobering past. And while there is not as much physical violence committed in the name of Christ anymore, I wonder whether that has less to do with us maturing than it does with the fact that we don't have the same power that we used to have. Attitudes of violence, of course, persist in many forms. So the disparity between what Jesus taught and how people behave inevitably stirs up a range of emotions. I don't know how you're doing. Congratulations on making it through the tour. But it should lead us to some serious reflection and to confession. But at the same time, I invite us also to hear Jesus called not to be afraid or troubled, not to give in to despair or to fear, particularly in the form of rage. I love the wisdom here. Zond again said, beware of cultivating perpetual rage. Yes, there's much to be angry about, but your soul cannot bear the strain of perpetual rage. Pray more. We're living in a time where the implications of not taking Jesus seriously are being exposed in some blatant and obvious and ugly ways. So this is an opportunity to confess where we've fallen short, to listen intently to what Christ is saying to us, to receive it, to follow it, to be embraced by him and to embrace him. My deep longing in this moment is for the church in our day to be more awake and alive than we have been in recent memory. So to that end, in response to the words of Jesus, I believe we're invited into at least three movements. Invited to give ourselves to receiving the peace of Christ. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. What does that look like? I think this has to do in part with practicing attentiveness first to the ways that we resist and refuse peace. I've made this argument that we've, we've taken what the world gives instead of this. So we need to look inside as well and consider what part have I played in this? The ways in which I'm violent toward myself, through words or actions, thoughts, the ways in which I'm violent toward others through similar means, the ways in which I deny my need for peace, the peace that Christ gives and insist on autonomy, insist on self-reliance, no, I'm good, peace, I leave you, no, I'm good, to boldly name and confess these postures before God in an assurance that he forgives and promises a fresh start. To receive the peace of Christ has to do with the practice of being still, learning to ground our being in the silence of God. And another movement I believe we're invited into is resisting the patterns Christ didn't intend. And this has to do with finally forsaking what Walter Wink called the myth of redemptive violence. This also means practicing confession, looking at the log in our own eye. It means practicing resistance to the ways of empire, of power, of coercion, noticing them, calling them out, taking a stand with those on the margins while at the same time loving our enemies. It's a tall order. Praying for those who perpetuate these patterns and forgiving them in the way of Jesus. Remember the way of Jesus and the way he forgave. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. 
We see that a lot. People don't know what they're doing. We don't know what we're doing. Jesus says, forgive them anyway. And practice refusing to get caught in the web of ongoing rage. So receiving the peace of Christ, resisting the patterns Christ didn't intend, and to join God in restoring shalom. What will it look like for us to make peace, to give it away, to, bring, to join God in bringing about shalom in the world and in our worlds? When we pass the peace in our Sunday gatherings, this is a richer image than to simply say, say hi to each other. Not that there's anything wrong with that in itself, but when we say pass the peace, it's richer because when you say the peace of Christ to another human being, you're actually saying, I wish you shalom. Whatever wholeness I have come to know because of Christ in me, I now offer to you. Peace of Christ to you. So we practice even by doing this. Recall the story of Dirk Willems, who turned back to rescue his pursuer. One writer who told that story uh, wondered whether the next step for the church is to take in peacemaking might be to nurture unconventional reflexes. That's a great phrase to take with us. Nurture unconventional reflexes. I love that image. What if our prayer this morning was simply this, God, what unconventional reflexes are you inviting me to nurture in this season? It could be joining the neighborhood guild, seeking to welcome the neighbors from our community. It could be partnering with Red Clover, seeking reconciliation between the church and our First Nations neighbors. It could be seeking to honor those who live under the same roof as you with a simple sacrificial act of kindness. Whatever it looks like, remember that restoring shalom is about practicing the way of Jesus, this way of peace and wholeness that comes through struggle, and it's only possible through co-suffering love. And maybe small steps will eventually inspire bigger steps. I want to share one last image with you before I invite you to the table. This is a poster advocating, if you can read the small print there, but it says, A Modest Proposal for Peace. It was written by a couple of Mennonites in 1984, and it reads, Let the Christians of the world agree that they will not kill each other. It often takes a while for the implications of such a statement, it's kind of disturbing, to, to sink in. Now, most agree. Let's look around the room. Yeah, I'm not going to kill any of you. Maybe John Voth, but that's a joke. I uh, won't kill anyone in the room. And then we might extend this to people from other churches in Vancouver, our wider denomination perhaps, and even beyond that. But what about other Christians from other nations in war zones? Or Christian soldiers in opposing armies? And... How do we really know who the Christian soldiers or civilians are? And why should we give preferential treatment to Christians in the first place? So eventually it dawns on us that this modest proposal maybe isn't so modest after all. It begins to lead us into a place where peacemaking might even be possible. Invite us to another brief moment of stillness, and then I want to offer a prayer for us, and then invite us to the table. Jesus, we confess this morning that we are novices when it comes to the work of making peace. 
we need you to be our teacher. We need you to be our guide. We thank you for the gift of peace that you offer to us. We thank you for the vision for shalom that speaks of a circle that is whole and is complete. We thank you for your own life, for your death, for your resurrection, for your example. That you came not just to talk about peace, but to embody what it looks like. So in this particular cultural moment, there is, uh, there is much that seems to be the antithesis of, of shalom. And we long for more of it. We long for more of your peace. For a true and lasting peace. And we ask for courage to listen to your words, to actually do what you're asking us to do. We ask for courage and grace to be people of peace. Would you give us the grace also within ourselves to receive the peace that you offer? You would call to mind those places in which we want to, we would rather resist, rather live without the peace that you give. That you would lead us, that you would give us new, fresh imagination for ways in which we might be called to resist and to nurture unconventional reflexes in the name of Christ. Would you raise up your church in this day? May we be more awake and more alive more receptive to you, more responsive to you. Pray this in the name of Christ, in the name of Christ. Amen.